0: What's up, my friends? Jason M is here. So glad to be with you here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast back in my office studios, excited and ready to go. Just to bring you up to speed, if you've missed any previous podcasts, we are now in the Passion Week. So that's right. Last podcast that we did was covering Palm Sunday. Now on today's podcast, Podcast 89, this is Monday and there's a lot of different events. Matter of fact, I broke them down into six different events. So this would be a great way for you to better understand what Jesus did on Monday leading up to him giving up his life. Now, you could go to standstrongministries.org, check out all the archives there. The study notes are available. And I just got to say, I am so thankful that as I travel, talking to many of you guys, you're finding the podcast, you're listening to the podcast, and you're sharing them. That right there, I pray you do more. So again, if, you're, if you've listened to all 89 episodes and you have yet to share this podcast with someone in your life, please, would you do that? Would you make a commitment to do that? And that's one way that these uh, podcasts – are listened to by you sharing them with your friends, with your family, with people you go to church with, help grow the platform as people around the world are downloading these episodes and they're growing in their faith and they're getting grounded as a whole purpose here is they're standing strong in God's word. Now we have a lot to cover. So I want to jump right in. And the first event that we're going to check out is that Jesus curses the fig tree. This is found in Matthew 21, 18 through 19 in Mark 11. So here in Matthew 21, 18, it says, in the morning, which is Monday, the month of Nisan, so this is the month of April, as he was returning to the city, Mark 11, verse 12, from Bethany, and of course, we're told in Mark 11, verse 11, that Jesus went out to Bethany with the 12. So more than likely, what we see is during the Passion Week, at the end of the day, Jesus returns to Bethany to stay with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And then we're told in Matthew 21, 18 and Mark 11:12 12, at the end of the verse, he became hungry. So more than likely, Jesus woke up very early, prayed, and he neglected breakfast. They probably either maybe were still asleep or didn't have time to make him something, but he's already heading out. Now, we can just skip over that. I think this is significant because it shows Jesus is on a mission. He's been on a mission since he came into this world, but these are his final days. So imagine what you would do during your final days if you knew you had a week left in your life. What would you do? Now, of course, in the case of Jesus, he has more lessons to teach them. The nation is still in unbelief. The officials are still rejecting him. There are so many things that he still needs to address with his disciples. So we're told in Mark 11 verse 13, And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Okay, so in the city of Bethphage, which is adjoined to Bethany, It was called the House of Figs. So there's tons of figs everywhere. So as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, he's coming upon a lot of different figs. Now, fig trees started to grow fig leaves in roughly March, April, and this was the pre-season time. So as Jesus was approaching this particular fig tree, it seemed to have these pre-season figs, these fruit buds, but it didn't. Now, it was very common for peasants as they journey that they would grab some of these fruit buds and they would get some little nutrition from them. Now, M.S. Mills, in his commentary, The Life of Christ, he writes, quote, The leaves of the Palestinian fig tree bud in April and the tree produces two crops of fruit per season. Winter figs normally ripen in May and summer figs in late August and September. It is possible to pick figs over nine or ten months in Palestine. So our Lord's actions were not out of context. In colder climates, winter figs are killed by the frosts. Bethphage, which lies between Bethany and Jerusalem, means house of figs. So our Lord was in an area renowned for its figs, one in which figs could be expected, albeit early in the season, especially as their fruit often ripes before the leaves shoot. So you may be wondering, who cares whether or not there were figs on this tree for Jesus to eat as he's going to Jerusalem? What significance does this have? Well, there seems to be a double meaning regarding the fruitless fig tree. Now, in a physical sense, the fig tree failed to deliver what it appeared to have. So you take that physical appearance, what was taking place, and you apply a spiritual meaning to it because the fruitless fig tree represents Israel. You see that in Jeremiah 8 verse 13 and Micah 7 verse 1. It symbolized that the nation of Israel, they were barren. Despite the faithfulness of God, despite all of his promises and all the prophets that he had sent, His people rejected him. And so one of the things that the gospel of Mark does is he demonstrates this barrenness among Israel throughout the portion of his gospel. So in Mark 11 and verse 14, it says, and Jesus said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. So just a few months before this, if you recall, Jesus warned the Jews to repent. Otherwise they would what? They would perish. Go back to Luke 13 verses one through five. But right after that, Jesus gives him an additional warning and he gives him a parable of a barren fig tree in Luke 13, six through nine. So despite all the warnings and all the reasoning, the Jews still refuse to comply to the warnings that Jesus gave. So at this point in Jesus's ministry, he curses the fig tree as a solemn judgment on Israel's unrepentance and their barrenness. So as he's going to Jerusalem after Palm Sunday, the day before he comes upon this fig tree that appeared to have some budding that he can take some nutrients from, but it was false. It had nothing out of all the trees. He picked that one. Cause I think it's significant. He's pointing out that as he's going into Jerusalem, this city, this temple is barren. So now we enter to the second event where Jesus now cleanses the temple For the second time, this is found in Matthew 21, 12 through 13, Mark 11, 15 through 17 and Luke 19, 45 through 46. I'm just going to read Mark chapter 11, 15 through 17, because there's a little bit more details here. And Matthew and Luke basically say the same thing. So here in Mark 11, verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers which means the currency that was exchanged into the Tyrene shekel and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So right after Jesus curses the fig tree, he arrives into Jerusalem and he immediately goes to the temple where he points out the root problem of the Jews. The reason why they are barren as a nation is because ultimately they exchanged their love for God for money. You see, the high priest turned the outer courts into a market filled with profiteers who inflated prices on temple-approved sacrifices and byproducts. Everything not just from the sacrifices themselves, but wine, salt, oil. And they charged a high interest on the exchange rate for other goods in the temple tax, which would really amount to two full days of wages for a Jewish man, according to Exodus thirty. 12 through 16. Furthermore, the Jews converted the one place for Gentiles to gather and honor God into a market that served no purpose for them. The court of the Gentiles was even used as a shortcut for merchants coming with their products from the Mount of Olives. So the Jewish people were no longer a blessing to the other nations, as they're told from Isaiah 40 through 55. They were taking a place that was designated for people that were not like them, but showing that they too can know the creator of the heavens and the earth. And they started to violate that. They started to defile that because they cared about their interests rather than being a blessing to God. In the Chronological Study Bible uh, produced by Thomas Nelson, it says, quote, "'When Jesus observed the tables on the money changers "'who were selling there, "'he was standing in the court of the Gentiles, Only in this area were the merchants allowed to sell sheep and doves for sacrifice at Passover to exchange foreign currency for the required temple offering. This outer court was a site of Jesus' dramatic temple cleansing, end quote. So accordingly, Jesus, when he drives them out and he overturns the tables and the seats we're told here in the gospel of Mark and the money changers that took the temple currency, he did this as an act to rebuke the priests. He did this as an act to show their abuse of power and how they were defiling the temple. Just about three and a half years before this, when he started his public Galilean ministry in John 2, verses 13 through 22, that's what Jesus did. One of the first acts that he did was he went into the temple and he cleansed it. Of course, three and a half years later, they're still doing it. Verse 16, and notice it says, and he would not allow, literally, he would not permit anyone to carry anything, any merchandise. Through the temple. So Jesus is standing, if you can imagine this, and all the chaos and all the products and all the merchandise that's there, he's standing near the entrance into the temple, to the temple courts where the Gentiles would gather. But this is where all the stuff was spread out there. And he was preventing them from offering their purchases and sacrifices. And it says in verse 17, and he was teaching them. So a crowd starts gathering around Jesus as he's preventing people from from carrying any merchandise and, and exchanging it into the Tyrene shekel. And it's, and he says here, is it not written? My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus, this is amazing. He's standing there preventing people from defiling the temple for partaking in the temple tax. And he begins to teach the people outside the temple, as well as inside the temple, as there's crowds gathering around him. And he quotes from Isaiah 56 verse 7, and he reminds them that the prophet Isaiah said that my place, my house, my temple should be a house of prayer. But then he also refers to Jeremiah 7 verse 11, and he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. And we know the story of Jeremiah where they were unrepentant and they rejected the people of Judah. So Jesus's first point is recognizing that the temple needs to be a place of observance to God. Yet now the Jews have turned it into a place centered on the affluence of man. And the second thing that Jesus points out is the Jews disobedience to God in exchange for the dependence on the temple to protect them. Rather than through the temple, they worship God who gave them the temple so they can have access to him and communicate with him and have communion fellowship with him. They don't want that. They want to use it as a place where they can get people to give money. However, Jesus will later announce that the coming of destruction of the temple will happen. Remember in Mark 13 verse 2 in the Olivet Discourse. Just like the prophet Jeremiah did when he smashed a potter's vessel, it symbolized the coming destruction of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 19, 10 through 12. So when Jesus is piecing Isaiah and Jeremiah together, and then we later know what Jeremiah did with the potter symbolizing the destruction, Jesus will later, during the week, in the Olive Discourse outside the temple, he will describe prophetically the coming destruction of the temple. Now, the third event, Jesus now declares his time has come in John 12, 20 through 36. It says here, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So let's pause. So we just saw that the Gentile courts was being hijacked by the Jews for money. And we're told here in verse 20 of John chapter 12 that it was very customary for people to come who were Greeks at the feast to worship. Now, these Greek Gentile proselytes, these these were not Hellenists, but they were Greeks to Judaism. So they had converted and they came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Now, the mentioning of the Greeks by John harkens back to the words of Jesus way back in John chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Isn't that significant? Now, right in the context, again, this is something we can skip over, but we saw how the Jews were defiling the temple courts for the gentiles to gather to worship and yet guess what there were still gentiles there were still greeks who were coming that have converted to judaism and this is a, a testimony that the gospel is spreading beyond just the jews and this is the final week of jesus so this is very promising despite the rejection obviously and the unbelief of the jewish people themselves verse 21 so these came to philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked repeatedly, meaning to, to, to uh, Philip, sir, we wish, meaning we have a great desire to see Jesus. Now you might be wondering why did these Greeks come find Philip? Well, I don't exactly know, but here's a couple of explanations perhaps that may make sense. One reason is because Philip lived near Decapolis and maybe they came from Decapolis and Uh, and Philip was near there, so they got to know him way back when, or perhaps because Philip has a Greek name. We don't know, but they came to Philip, and they want to see Jesus. This is also fascinating, because when you go back to the Magi, who were also Gentiles, they were seeking out Jesus. Remember, they were searching him out in the beginning of his life, and here you see these Greeks who are seeking Jesus out at the end of his life. Morris writes, quote, in this gospel, we see Jesus as the world savior. And evidently, John means us to understand that this contact with the Greeks ushered in the climax. Jesus sees as evidence that his mission has reached its climax and that he is now to die for the world, Greeks included, quote. Now, obviously, I'm a Gentile and more than likely most of my listeners are Gentiles and aren't we thankful for that very promise? Verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and they told Jesus. So naturally, with all the attention that Jesus had been receiving for quite some time, the disciples attempted to screen different encounters. Go back to Luke 18, 15 through 16. And so Philip goes to get Andrew to for his help because it seems throughout Scripture that this was this was Andrew's specific job in helping people get access to Jesus. You see this in John 1 verses 40 through 42 and John 6 verses 8 through 9. And then verse 23, and Jesus answered, meaning he responded without answering their requests. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now remember up to this point, Jesus's hour was future in John 2 verse 4, John 4 verse 21, John 7 verse 30, John 8 verse 20. But now his hour has come. And we see in Luke 24, 26, fast forward, when the angel says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So at this time though, they're not making sense of this, but John, remember when he, throughout the gospel, he adds some commentary because he's reflecting back and then it makes sense. And then Jesus says in verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. So Jesus uses the death of a seed to speak of his crucifixion and his resurrection. That bears much fruit. As the sown kernel dies, right? What does it do? It produces a bountiful harvest. And so too will the death of the son of God bring forth eternal life to those who repent. Another thing that's fascinating about what Jesus just said about the grain of wheat falls on the earth and dies and remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's referencing Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Notice that verse from the prophet Daniel And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off that's the crucifixion of Jesus and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So there's going to be a lot of death to come, but there will be ultimate life in the end. And then he says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In essence, what Jesus is saying here in verses 25 through 26 is this is true life, surrendering to my will for your life, abandoning the life here on earth, meaning its riches, idolatry, serving yourself, self gratification, losing that life and gaining eternal life. That is true honor, that is true living. And that's what Jesus is pointing out to these Greeks, unlike the Jewish people who are taking advantage of the temple. And they're greedy for more gain. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me, rescue me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Now, what's interesting about verse 27, this phrase here, now is my soul. In the Greek, it carries this idea of the seat of human affections. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is that his entire human body Mind, heart, soul, there it's just, it's so troubled. He has this emotional distress. And so he's saying, what should I say? Father, deliver me from this because I'm suffering right now. The great thing about Jesus here is he's acknowledging, he's vulnerable. He's acknowledging his distress. He's agonizing over what's to happen on the cross. He's agonizing over the fact that people are rejecting him, but the two are inextricable. In, in a sense, there, there's glory and their suffrage, and these are inextricable. But we know, of course, as he's wavering on dying on the cross for the sins of the world, he's not going to give it up. He's going to do it because that's how great his love was for you and for me. David Guzik writes, quote, The cross, which had cast a shadow over the entire life and ministry of Jesus, would now become a reality in the experience of Jesus, end quote. And later in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus' agony. It doesn't let up. But rather, it escalates to the point where he suffers hypovolemic shock, where he's losing a great amount of blood. You see in Matthew 26, verse 39, Mark 14, 35, Luke twenty-two forty-two. 42. So in verse 28, he says, Father, glorify your name, meaning make it gloriously great of who you are. And then when Jesus says this, a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. I love this because despite the agony, Jesus cries out to the father in total obedience. We see that later in the priestly prayer in John 17 verses one through five. And the heavenly father responds just like he did at his baptism, Jesus's baptism and on the mountain of transfiguration in Matthew 17. And he affirms to his son in that moment of despair that he is high and lifted up. Now, God's voice, what's amazing when you look throughout scripture, it often sounds like thunder in 2 Samuel 22, 14, Job 37, verse 2, Job 40, verse 9, and Psalm 18, verse 13. Now, we're told in verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said, an angel has spoken to him. Now, to some, they only heard what sounded like thunder. It was so magnificent while others heard it as a beautiful voice from heaven. Now, Donald Guthrie writes, quote, there were three reactions to the heavenly voice. Some merely heard a noise like thunder. These were in no position to receive any kind of revelation. Others distinguished some kind of supernatural communication, but got no higher than an angelic voice. It was Jesus alone who recognized that the voice was for the sake of others, but because they had not heard the message, Jesus explained for their benefit the meaning of it, end quote. So in verse 30, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. So indeed, the voice from heaven brought comfort to Jesus, but he says the heavenly father spoke to help the people believe. Now, if you go back to Matthew 12, verse 38 through 45, and Matthew 15, verses 39, 39, all the way to chapter 16, verse 4, Remember, they wanted to see a sign from Jesus and then they said they'll believe. Well, guess what? This was a definite sign from heaven that the Jews had repeatedly asked for. And did anyone come to saving faith? No. Again, this points to the barrenness because of the hardness, because of the greed. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So here Jesus is referring to the victory, his death and his resurrection will have for mankind in over Satan's grip over the world. Later, Jesus will reference this in John 14, verse 30 and John 16, verse 11 and the upper room. Now, verse 33, and he said to this to show literally to give a sign by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, this is something that John inserts here as he captures in his commentary the true meaning of what Jesus was trying to say at the time to convey to the people. Verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? So the crowd knew what Jesus meant, right? But the problem here was they couldn't reconcile the Messiah being killed because they only knew really of a triumphant Messiah now, there were some writings, somewhat, that is, to the suffering servant recorded in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 specifically, but most only knew of the triumph of Messiah because that made most sense about delivering them from their oppressors. So Jesus says to them in verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest least darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now, what Jesus does here is he hearkens back to something he had been sharing with the crowds for quite some time. Remember in John 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Now, first century Jews would have easily understood what Jesus meant when he contrasted the children of light to the children of darkness. And so once again, what he's doing is He's trying to relate to the people because he's warning them of coming judgment, of coming destruction. And right now in his first advent, he's offering them a way out. He's offering them true deliverance. That's what they were anticipating that the Messiah would give them, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual one that he'd take them from spiritual darkness into the light of salvation. So now we transition into the fourth event where Jesus heals many at the temple. This is found in Matthew chapter 21, verses 14 through 16. There's a little uh, mention in John 12, verse 36. It reads here, and the blind and the lame came, meaning they approached and they came up close to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. It just means that he took care of them as they came and he healed them of their sickness. So here Jesus is exercising divine authority by healing the sick who were not permitted to be in the temple member because they were defiled, but things were so out of whack right now that unclean people were getting access into the temple verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw this wonderful thing that he did And the children crying out, meaning they were shouting and singing praises in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. They were so angry that they judged every action that Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd were doing as wrong. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? So the top religious officials have been tracking Jesus since his arrival in Jerusalem yesterday. Remember on Sunday. And many of the Jews in the temple are shouting praise to Jesus as the son of David, as the Messiah. And the leaders were so outraged over this that they confronted Jesus and they're calling this blasphemy. But yet, what did you just have? He's cleansing the temple, a voice from heaven. He's a light of the world. He came to give eternal life and he's confirming it by healing people in the temple. This is true ministry, not what they were doing. And so Jesus says to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. So Jesus cites Psalm 8 verse 2 to point out the praise he is receiving is to confound his enemies. And notice that it certainly was doing that. And this other phrase here, infants and nursing babies, this was actually typical language that Jesus used. As a matter of fact, Matthew records many of these instances in Matthew 11 verse 25 through 30. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. And the reason why this language is so important and what Jesus is conveying here is it underlines innocence of praise. So they're rejecting, but yet even in the midst of this Monday, Jesus is healing people in the temple. Isn't that amazing? Now the fifth event, Jesus now foretells the future. This is recorded in John 12, verses 37 through 50. Verse 37 Though he had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe in him. Now, John reflects back on the fruitfulness of Jesus' ministry on earth. And although many didn't believe in him, their unbelief didn't restrict his ministry. He fulfilled it. So in this section in John 12, 37 through 49, the word believe occurs eight times. So this is very important on this Monday leading to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 38, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. So John points to the prophetic warning of Isaiah 53 verse one, that Israel will see and witness the miracles of the Messiah. And yet they will remain in unbelief. Verse 39, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes, meaning a permanent state and harden their heart. Least they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So the gospels repeatedly quote from the prophetic words of Isaiah six, nine through 10, in which the prophet describes the blindness and the rejection of Israel. That's recorded in Matthew 13, verse three. Mark 4, verse 12, and Luke 8, verse 10. One commentary writes, Note that John 12, verse 40, which quotes Isaiah six ten, states that God blinds the eyes and hardens the hearts of those who persist in rejecting Christ. This verse is found seven times in the Bible, and each time it speaks of judgment. Isaiah 6, 10, Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, John 12, Acts 28, Romans 11, verse 8. It is a repeated warning that reminds the unsaved not to take their spiritual opportunities lightly. While you have light, believe in the light, seek the Lord, and he may be found, Isaiah 55, verse 6, end quote. If you go back with me to John chapter 9, verses 39 through 41, remember when Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains. So now, this phrase here Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John ties the prophet Isaiah to Jesus as God and the judge over Israel. So, what we're seeing here, my friends, on Monday is a lot of prophecy being fulfilled, particularly from the prophet Isaiah himself. Now, verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, meaning excommunicated. And notice verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So these authorities, John mentions, would have lost everything if they went public about their belief in Jesus as the Messiah. However, the fear of man prevented them from being a true disciple. Go back to Mark 8, verse 38. Go back to Luke 9, verse 26. This is critical. And I love how the fact that John mentions it. There are people who rejected him because they just didn't care. They wanted to be dead in their sins because this world is their God. This is their heaven on earth. And then you have people here who believed in everything that Jesus said, but out of fear of man, because they cared more about what man thought than what God thought. And so Jesus cries out in verse 44, meaning he's shouting persistently. And he says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This last deeply emotional plea is a culmination of so many of Jesus' teachings when you go back to John 3 and John 5 and John 6 and John 7 and John 8. You just hear the penetrating words of Jesus to these people. In verse 47, if anyone hears my words, if anyone, it's like, is this falling on deaf ears? Jesus is saying, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So Jesus is telling them right there in the temple in front of these religious leaders who are calling what he's doing as blasphemy. And he's saying, I didn't take on humanity to judge mankind right here, right now. He says, I came here first of all to atone for the sins of the world. So now is the time to receive me. You've been looking for a Messiah to deliver you. I'm here to deliver you. But I will return a second time. And when I come a second time, I will judge the world. John 5, verse 22. John 5, verses 27 through 30. So verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. So Jesus, he's telling the people, you're rejecting this and you're saying this is blasphemy, but I came to the authority of the father. And and I've willingly submitted to his plan to be judge over the world. To believe in the father's son, he's saying, is to have life, but to reject the son is to receive death. You got to go back, remember, when God spoke to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 19. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him, end quote. So these are prophetic words. Now he's even referring to Moses which now leads to the sixth event. Jesus is judged by the people. This is found in Matthew 21, verse 17, Mark eleven eighteen 18 through 19, Luke 19, 47 through 48. So here in Luke 19, verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple, Mark eleven eighteen, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So after Jesus ran out the money changers in the temple and pleaded with the Jews and the Greeks to believe in him, he continued throughout the day until sunset to teach the people and notice the great thing is many people feared him and were astonished by his teaching, Luke nineteen forty-eight. but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. This clearly shows the father's protection over his son. It's very evident here. It wasn't his time. Remember, people weren't going to take his life. He was going to give up his life when that time came. So it doesn't matter what man at this point tried to do. God was protecting him. His divine power is protecting him. Now, Mark 11, verse 19, And when evening came, Matthew 21, verse 17, he with his disciples went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. And then John 12, verse 36 When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So once again, I think, you know, it's a short little verse and we can skip over it, but this is important that Jesus had a hard day. He had an emotional day. He was doing what the father had called him to do. And at the end of the day, he went and he found shelter at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So I know that is a lot to cover and there's so many things that we can point out and apply to our lives, but I just want to say this to you, my dear friend, isn't Jesus absolutely amazing? I mean, from the very beginning of that day, he woke up early. I look to wake up early every day to study God's word, to pray before I start my day. And I pray you do the same. And if there's any barrenness in your life, if there's any fruitlessness in your life, pray to the father to convict and overwhelm your life, that you would surrender your life, that you that you, you remember that you're dead to sin and you're alive in Christ Jesus. And the Father, through His Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit, desires to bear much fruit in your life if you let Him. I so appreciate you guys for listening. I'm so thrilled that we just finished podcast 89, that we're almost through The gospel counts before we finish the New Testament. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the word of God.